Let's turn this morning, please, to Hebrews chapter 10, but also to Timothy, 1 Timothy. We're going to go to the pastoral epistles a little bit today. I think my voice is slightly tentative today, so silent prayer for that would be appreciated. I know if I couldn't talk, that would be a great blessing to many. The phrase I'm going to focus in on today is from Hebrews, and it's called, To Do, O God, Your Will. Central to Hebrews 10, and especially the pericope we're involved in right now, the first 10 verses, is the doing of God's will by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to consider what that means, what that means individually, what it means universally. And so today, the title of the message would be called The Universally Salvific Will of God in the Pastoral Epistles. Usually on Sunday mornings, I usually wake up between 3 and 4 and then have a hard time trying to get back to sleep. And so I go upstairs and do some editing, and I cut off large pieces of what I was going to say today to get to the central message today. Since God is a God who saves, and that's his title in Psalm 68:20, his will must be a saving will. Since God is the God who justifies, he's called that in Romans 8:30 and 33, his will must be a justifying will. Since God justifies the ungodly, as he does, as it says he does in Romans 4:5, his will must be entirely merciful and unconditionally gracious. Since God our Savior, as he's called in 1 Timothy 2.3, wills the salvation of all mankind, his will must be universally salvific. Will, you're staying awake today, I know that, because I'll be saying will a lot. <clears throat> It must be a universally saving intention and an irresistible resolution. God's will and God's grace in this sense are one. God's will and God's grace are one. Whereas 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, and I'd like you to turn there to 1 Timothy. We're going to start, though, with 1 Timothy 4. As 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, God's will is the salvation of all men, all men, anthropoi, refers in that case as in the majority of cases in the New Testament to all human beings of all places and times in all of time. <clears throat> More emphatically then, we have 1 Timothy 4.9. I'm going to carefully look at these because among other things, the Timothys and Titus called the pastoral epistles. Among other things, they function as statements. They contain statements, brief, concise doctrinal summaries of Pauline doctrine, of what Paul taught throughout his church epistles. And so it's extremely important. I think they're most important because of that. 1 Timothy 4.9 is one of them. And these are often prefaced by a little saying called pistos ho logos. And again, you'll see these in print because we're going to have the notes out. But this is a trustworthy statement. <clears throat> and Paul even gets him more emphatic by saying, and worthy of total acceptance. <clears throat> worthy of total acceptance. A trustworthy statement, meaning it's totally reliable because it comes from God has a divine authorship, and it's worthy of total acceptance by us, by human beings in faith. And then Paul says in verse 10, in a parenthetical statement, he says, indeed, for this, we work and fight. This is the reason we work. This is the reason we fight. That means, metaphorically, why we stay in the battle. 
And then he says this, we hope in the living God who is the savior of all men. Here it doesn't say he wills to save all men or all human beings. It says he is the savior of all human beings, especially those who believe. Now, with virtually every verse I do, I'm, I have A.T. Robertson standing by because he's one of the most notable exegetes of the last century. I don't agree with him on a lot of things. After all, he's a Southern Baptist. <clears throat> but he is an excellent exegete. And so I say God is not, as he suggests, Robertson suggests, potentially savior of all. That's one of the most misleading human traditions of interpretation. <clears throat> potentially savior of all. It does not say he's potentially savior. And he also then says he's actually only savior of the believing, the pistoi. And he cites a fella named White, a, an exegete that he depends on. But I would say God is the actual savior of all. That's what it says right here. It's in your face. It's in Robertson's face. It's in Mr. White's face. It's in the, the faces of all. God is the actual savior of all and especially, actually, the savior of those who are believing, in a state of believing, because they are the segment of saved humanity who experience the joy and peace that comes with God's salvation even now. And when I do a revamping of the Gospel of John, which I'm going to do, I'm going to do a brief revisitation of the Gospel of John sometime if the Lord gives me time and breath to show you the meaning of believe in 99 uses in John. It is an activity sponsored by, directed by and empowered by the Holy Spirit of these, especially those who are believing. And it's not the means of justification. It's not the way we're justified. Faith, true faith, isn't justifying faith. It's believing and as a result having a measurable experience of the age to come. Future world, we call it. Hebrews 6.5 in connection with Romans 15.13 with a reference to Romans 14.17. And so God is actually already the savior of all mankind. Otherwise, Paul was only kidding when he said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is already actually the savior of all mankind, and he's actually, especially, the savior of those who are believing. Why especially? Because those who are believing accept his word, know his word, understand the gospel as the power of God for salvation, perceive the word of God as that. And they are experiencing in some measure, in this world, an age that passes away, the life of the coming age, which has already come in Jesus Christ and will never pass away. So this great exegete, and he is that, A.T. Robertson, may well have lived his life hoping in the living God who is a potential savior of all. But I like what the Greek text actually says, present active indicative of a me, it says, hos esten soter panton anthropon. The Greek text minus human tradition, minus human interpretation, says the savior of all human beings. It's easy to see how the bias of human tradition can corrupt good exegesis. Titus 2.11, since we're in the pastorals, it says that the grace of God appeared. The grace of God appeared. The will of God is for salvation. The grace of God appeared, 
And then, as I've said many, many times, it doesn't say bringing salvation. It doesn't have a verb. It has simply, we would put in the English a colon, and it will say the salvation of all human beings. The salvation of all human beings. The grace of God appeared in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that means, which culminated in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session, at the right hand of the Father. The grace of God appeared, and I would put this in brackets to make the meaning clear, and that means salvation for all human beings. When Jesus was born and in the manger, that meant the salvation of all human beings. When Jesus died on the cross, that meant the salvation of all human beings. Whether in the feeding trough of animals or on a crucifixion, a crucifix, the Roman instrument of death, the grace of God was appearing. And salvation was gained for all mankind. So God's will is his gracious will, his saving will, his will to save all human beings of all times and places. God's will is merely mercy for all because the unbreakable scripture, and the scripture cannot be broken, the unbreakable scripture says God has shut up all human beings in disobedience in order to have mercy on them all. I like to say this to shock with a little shock value. What is it that qualifies us for God's mercy? Is it our faith? No, it's our unbelief. That really undercuts all the human arrogance of self-righteousness. God's mercy is none other than his all-saving mercy. Universal salvific mercy. For as it says in Titus, let's look at it, Titus chapter 3, <clears throat> speaking of grace making an appearance, Titus 3, 4, now when the kindness and philanthropy of God our Savior made an appearance, And let's skip. I've done this many times, and I know that you know it, many of you. Let's just skip some of the in-between phrases. When the kindness and philanthropy of God our Savior made an appearance, he saved us. One scholar I was reading this past week said, I was converted at Golgotha. He's right. So let's read the whole verse as I've taken it from the Greek text minus human traditional interpretation. Now when the kindness and philanthropy of God our Savior made an appearance, verse 5, not as an answer to works done by us in a state of righteousness, but as a result of his mercy, he saved us. His mercy is always a saving mercy. According to Romans 11.32, it's a universally saving mercy. Through the bath of regeneration, that's right when the traditionalists expecting him to say, through our faith. No, through the bath of regeneration. We took a bath. Somebody will say, I took a bath on that investment. Well, we took a bath. God gave us a bath of regeneration and a renewal accomplished by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit joins in the saving action of God. 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, our Savior. Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs with the confident expectation of everlasting life. So God's universally saving, and I guess I can use this fancy word now because we even defined it from the dictionary, salvific. God's universally salvific mercy is accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom in Titus, Paul had already called our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus 2.13. One of the distinctive characteristics, and I say this again, if not the main characteristic of the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, is their succinct summary statements of Paul's doctrine with regard to God's universally salvific will and of Jesus Christ's universally saving significance. And for your own study, and this actually, what I'm doing too is a pastoral favor to pa- favor to pastors. I'm giving you the scaffolding if you ever want to teach the pastoral epistles in the future. First Timothy 1.15, First Timothy 2, 3 through 6, First Timothy 4, 9 to 10, which we've already looked at, Titus 2.11 to 14, and 3, 4 to 7 are examples. One that isn't usually seen as an example, we'll look at now, 2 Timothy 2.11 to 13. This is a notable example of universal saving will of God, though it's not often seen as such. A translation with short bracketed exposition from the Greek text makes this pop as an example of the USSJCUICC, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and his universal impact of the cross of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.11 begins with that special preface, pistos hologos, trustworthy is this following statement. By statement, logos, he means summary of doctrine, summary of Pauline doctrine which you get if you read Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. This is what you get. This is the summary. Trustworthy, that means totally reliable, is the following summary of doctrine. Here it is. Since we died with him. Now, because this is a summary of Paul's doctrine, what does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.14? Christ died for all, then all died. So we here means everybody. Since we, that's everybody, died with him, we did, that's a fulfilled condition, we will also live with him. The guarantee of living with him because we died with him. Who died with him? All died with him. 2 Corinthians 5.14. Who lives with him? In Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. This is a summary statement of Pauline dogmatics or Pauline doctrine. So it's a trustworthy statement. Since we died with him and we did, we will also live with him and we will having the life of the coming endless age. Now here's here's some tricky parts. Verse 12. If we persevere, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And I have shown you and proven it according to the scriptures, and it's proven right in the flow here of the doctrine. If we deny him, he denies us our denial of him. You say, how can you interpret it that way? Well, for one thing, the next verse interprets it. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. So if we deny him, say no to him, and that means to say no to the spiritual 
life, the life that he offers us to faith, he denies us ultimately the right of our denial. God rejects the man or the woman who rejects him by rejecting their ungodly decisions so that he may justify the ungodly. So if we persevere, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us our denial of him is what that means because if we, re if we are unfaithful, that means if we don't believe. He remains faithful. And this is the point. It's his faithfulness that justified us, not our faith. He cannot deny himself as what? He cannot deny himself as being the savior of all mankind. Just because you deny him, just because you say no, just because you are too intelligent to be like us country bumpkins who actually believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ and cling to our Bibles. God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself as he whose faithfulness saves us despite our faithlessness and denial of him. He is the savior of all mankind, especially those who believe, but all mankind includes those who don't believe. This is hard to get through to people today because we've been stained by the Reformation. It's notable that this succinct summary begins with the phrase, pistos ha logos, pistos ha logos. It also precedes another verse, if you want to go backwards, 1 Timothy 1.15. This one actually says it better than all together. It's only succinct. Trustworthy is the following statement or summary of doctrine and worthy of total acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom Paul says, I am the worst. To be the first of sinners is to be the worst of sinners. Paul was saved not when he believed, but when he was confronted by Jesus Christ on the outskirts of Damascus before he believed. God revealed his son to Paul and then gave Paul the gift of faith. This is totally worthy of acceptance, and it's a faithful, totally reliable saying. Christ came into the world. What does Hebrews 10.5 says? Coming into the world, he says, I came to do your will. Well, what's God's will? To save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, once I thought I was the worst, but I'm not going to take that away from Paul. Okay, Paul's the worst. Somebody's worse than me. <laughs> Sinners covers the entire human race. Even Mr. Norman Greenbaum, who said, never been a sinner, never sinned. I got a friend in Jesus. I too have a friend in Jesus. I was a wicked sinner and always sinned and still would be sinning instead of preaching right now if it weren't for having a friend in Jesus. And so, that's the song Spirit in the Sky. And I kind of slammed it last week, but I shouldn't do that because that's vulgar. Sinners covers the entire human race with the unique exception, of course, of Jesus Christ, though some are worse than others. It doesn't say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners if they behave. That's what a lot of preachers like to say. Or if they repent of their sins. He came into the world to save sinners if they repent of their sins. It doesn't even say he came in to save into the world to save sinners if they believe. It simply says Messiah Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he did. He didn't come into the world to save sinners and then not do that. 
He did it. And Paul did say, I'm the worst, meaning if he saves me, he saves everybody. He saves everybody. That's what he was saying that for. So according to Titus 3, 4 to 7, as we just read, he did. This is a trustworthy statement. Also serves a short preface to 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. And it's also an appendix to Titus 3, 4 to 7. You say Titus 3, 4 to 7 does not say pistos ho logos, but it does say it afterwards. Paul says pistos ho logos, pointing back to it. What I just said, he says, pistos ho logos. The previous is a trustworthy summary of doctrine. And then he charges Timothy to get pretty serious about this. If preachers aren't seriously teaching the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, they aren't preaching the gospel. Don't tell me it's the gospel. It's not the gospel. And so pastors receive that charge in Titus 3.8, for example. This is a trustworthy statement. The only other place in the pastorals where this declaration precedes the saying is 1 Timothy 3.1, where it says, this is a trustworthy statement. Pistos ho logos. If someone... And that's the indefinite nominative masculine singular pronoun. If someone aspires to be a pastor, episcopes, overseer, one responsible for overwatch of a local assembly, he desires a good occupation. It's a faithful saying, worthy of acceptance. And so that's why they call these the pastoral epistles, because pastors are urged, commanded, to teach according to the summary of doctrine, that has to do with the universally salvific will of God in Christ Jesus. It's also important to notice that following the pistos halogos in Titus 3.8, Paul says, I want you to speak confidently, insisting on them, insisting on these statements. And then he added, so that those who have confidence in God may be careful to engage in praiseworthy tasks. These are useful and advantageous for everyone. In other words, once you get over yourself, and once you get over the fact that your works had nothing to do with your salvation, then you're free to do some good works, motivated by God in you, by God in you, willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Once we have confidence in God that he's already wrought salvation for everyone and that we don't have to do good works to be saved, we can then freely and gladly engage in honorable and benevolent tasks that are profitable for everyone in and outside the church. Now, the second segment of our second gear, we might say, of our message, Jesus does the salvific will of God. We know that God's will is salvific. Jesus did it. And that's all I need to know. All of this serves not only as a valuable doctrine, our pastorals here, but also as a somewhat elongated preface to our Hebrews passage in which God's salvific will is a main attraction. This first paragraph, Hebrews 10, 1 to 4, which I'm not going to repeat, that first paragraph has to do with the inefficacy of the sacrifices and offerings as prescribed by the law. Salvific inefficacy, ineffectiveness. Sacrifices and offerings that are also most manifestive of their opposite, to use Aquinas' language. The opposite of these is the once and for all and forever salvifically efficacious sacrifice and offering of Jesus Christ. If the sacrifices and offerings presented under the law were unable to complete the worshipers, that's by an internal purification, then they were completely unable to do so. The sacrifice of Christ was and is able to complete, and therefore it was and is always completely able to complete 
the worshipers, that's us. So I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, which is our focus today. This is why coming into the world, see that phrase? That's why I hit 1 Timothy 1.15, faithful saying. Christ came into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why coming into the world, he, who, Christ Jesus, says, sacrifice and offering is not what you willed, but you've made a body for me. You're not pleased with holocausts and offerings for sin. Then I said, Jesus speaking here through David in the Psalms, look, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it's written about me to do, O God, your will. We've just established that will to be universally salvific and merciful and gracious. Verse 8, the pastor now writes, after that quote, pretty extensive quote of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, Septuagint is where he gets it, 39, 7 to 9, rather than the corrupt Masoretic Hebrew text, he quotes the Greek text, which we use here. Verse 8, the PT then says, in the text above where he said sacrifices and offerings and holocausts and offerings for sin, you haven't willed. And then he puts, the pastor puts in brackets here, that is those offered according to the law, according to the Levitical prescription of Moses' law. He then says, Look, I've come to do your will. See the emphasis falling on God's will and the doing of it by the Messiah. Thus he abolishes the first. And for now, I'll just say what the first is. It's what God does not ultimately will. He abolishes what God does not ultimately will to establish the second, what God does ultimately will. Verse 10, by which will God's salvific will, we have been and are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Bang! Ephapax. Once and for all. Key word in Hebrews. I told you I wasn't going to read any more commentaries, but I have to finish. I can't start something and not finish it. So I am at least finishing Harold Atrich's excellent commentary, William L. Lane's excellent commentary, and Coaster's commentaries, and several others. So I read this yesterday. Atridge, commenting on Hebrews 10.10, says, What has taken place in Christ is the accomplishment of the divine will. That's pretty well said. It's pretty pithy and... Succinct. Expanding slightly on that statement, I would say, if I wrote a commentary, what has taken place in Christ is the universally salvific divine will. What was finished when Jesus said finished was Jesus' doing of the universally salvific will of God his Father, who is now also our Father. So in Hebrews 10.5, the faculty for hearing, an ear you have prepared for me, as it appears in some texts of Psalm 40, becomes a body you prepared for me. And the body that was prepared by God for Jesus Christ is the flesh which he became when the eternal word became flesh. In that body, Jesus hears the Father, and he does the will of God. When we consider the will of God, we must, in context, and in fact, and in general, think of his will as salvific, as redemptive, as sanctifying, as purifying. In Hebrews 10.10, 10.14, and in a practical sense, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4, God wills our practical 
sanctification or being set apart for vocation in this life as a witness of Jesus Christ. Sanctification <clears throat> as justification, as redemption, as reconciliation, and propitiation are all salvific terms, and they all speak of what God's will is. Our practical sanctification that we call sometimes progressive sanctification or something that actually takes place in time by which we're set apart from this cosmos. It's a work accomplished by Jesus Christ in us as he accomplished our forever permanent sanctification and the sanctification of all human beings permanently in his death on the cross. He accomplishes in us a practical sanctification as he creates in us a clean heart. Now, at this point, I'm going to do an excursus. This is what's called leaving the 99 to get the one or the two. At this point, then, there's another area of affinity of the pastoral epistles that's worth mentioning. Another area where the pastorals sort of rhyme and chime with Hebrews. And it's 1 Timothy 1.5 where Paul says the goal, tell us, of our instruction is love from a clean heart. Clean heart. A complete consciousness. Good consciousness, agathe, means complete in that case. A complete consciousness as same word used in Hebrews 9, 9, 9, 14, 10, 2, 10, 22, and 13, 18, and an authentic faith. That's important because what we're going to study in Hebrews 11, 1, all the way through 12, 3, is authentic faith, meaning that there's actually a, an inauthentic faith. The goal of the instruction, which is the exposition and exhortation in Hebrews, for example, is likewise love from a clean heart. That's the goal of teaching Hebrews, the goal of teaching Revelation, the goal of teaching John, the goal of teaching Paul's epistles. Love from a clean heart. We have that in Hebrews 6.10, 10.24, and 13.1, for example. A good and complete consciousness. That means simply a consciousness free from the evil of unanswered guilt and an authentic faith, the subject that we're about to tackle earnestly in Hebrews 11, 1 to 12, 3. It is not an epistle or a homily that creates a clean heart. Only God does that. He's the creator. It's as much an act of God the creator to create a clean heart in us as it was to create the universe in the first place and to bring about the new creation. Part of bringing about the, the new creation is the creation of a clean heart in his people. God does that. Though he utilizes sound biblical instruction to that end. And we should never forget that. David prayed from a place of the despair of his own power. And blessed are you if you pray from the place of despair of your own power. David prayed from a place of the despair of his own power. Create in me a clean heart. The word is Katharan or Cardian, Cardian, Katharan. Same word used in 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our instruction is love from a clean heart. Cardia, Katharas, a catheterized heart. O oh God, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. That's Psalm 51.10, but the Septuagint has it in 50.12. He appealed to the creator God to do that which only the creator of the universe can do. And apart from any human energy or endeavor, the clean heart is free from the evil of unbelief. 
Hebrews 3.12. Departure from the living God because of a heart of unbelief. A clean heart is purged from the burdensome and grievous need and impulse to have to do dead works or to fulfill empty rituals to assuage or to meet the requirements of guilt or fear. Guilt that's often fueled by religionists, preachers, clergy, who themselves are defiled in their consciousness and who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. There's more of those in pulpits than there are friends of God. I promise you that. A purified heart is a heart fortified by the full assurance of faith or genuine faith. A clean heart is a heart established by grace, Hebrews 13, 9. And so this week I was wondering if someone addicted to pornography, which is a soul destructive thing, it's made light of today, but it will destroy your soul almost faster than looking at anything else. I wonder if someone addicted to pornography and plagued by perverse thoughts and habits or addictions, I wonder if someone who undergoes hours in group or individual therapy, if ever in all those hundreds of hours of therapy, they have ever prayed, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Think he answers it? I think he does. He does because God helps the helpless. All these prayers are prayers of the helpless. They are not God helps those who help themselves. Help yourself if you want. God won't help you. <laughs> God helped me when I was helpless. God gave me hope when I was hopeless. God gave me life when I was dead in sins. And I have never left the place of the desperation of my own power. I've never been empowered in myself since one day in January in 1972. A clean heart is the definition of human sanity and of practical sanctification. And the basis of that sanity and that sanctification is God's grace. Love comes only from a clean heart and only from a consciousness free from debilitating guilt. The best therapy is the word of Jesus Christ, which says now you are clean through the word that I've spoken to you just now. John 15, 3. A good consciousness is simply the absence of the evil of unbelief in the heart. It is good or complete in the sense that it is not malfunctioning or emotionally disabling. Genuine faith, on the other hand, is not faith that claims to be justifying faith. There's no such thing as justifying faith. It doesn't exist. There is the justifying faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and that's it. It's a false faith that puts faith together with justification, as if personal faith justifies you. It does not. Genuine faith does not claim to be justifying faith, for we are not justified by our faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Genuine faith is kindled in the heart of the one to whom God has revealed his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is revealed to Thomas. Thomas sees the revelation of the risen Christ. Thomas then is gifted with faith. My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said, you believe now. He wasn't, he wasn't condemning Thomas there. He was saying, now you believe. That's great. Then blessed are those who believe having not seen. That means not seeing the risen Christ in the flesh. But there's a seeing of Jesus Christ before we believe in every case. We see with the eyes of our heart. This is the will of my Father, that they would see the Son and believe on him, and that I should raise him up on the last day. All those things happen for everybody. We see the Son, and this whole series is called We See Jesus, with the eyes of our heart, of course. This is the will of my Father, John 6.40, that they will see the Son and believe in him, seeing first, believing second, and that I should raise them up on the last day. Those three things will happen for everyone. For every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Seeing him, obviously they're going to believe in him because every knee will bow and every tongue confess the statement of faith that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God, the Father. And so, what is faith? I'm preparing us here for Hebrews 11.1, 1, though you might not know it. Genuine faith is kindled in the heart of the one to whom God has revealed his son, Jesus Christ, Galatians 1.16. It is, then, faith, genuine faith, on the objective side, is the reality of events hoped for. Things hoped for in Hebrews 11.1 1 means events that are hoped for. Jesus Christ himself being not only a person, but an event. Jesus Christ himself is the hoped for and as yet seen event. So genuine faith on the objective side is the reality of events hoped for and the documentation of unseen events. Jesus Christ himself is the hoped for and, as, and it, also he is the yet unseen event. Genuine faith is the full conviction that Jesus Christ is reality itself. The comprehensive reality of uncreated deity and now of all created beings. Genuine faith is given to us after we have been born of God according to his will and power. He that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Put that in the right order. Having been born of God, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. God reveals his son to you. And you believe in him as a subsequent gift. The revelation of God to you is salvation. Believing is an act subsequent to your salvation, which is by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's genuine faith. Jesus Christ is the archagos of faith, the origin of faith, the source of faith. In fact, he is the faith. Genuine faith is given to us after we've been born of God and become the children of God. Genuine faith is that by which the ancestors of the Hebrews readers in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 received an approving attestation from God. Without genuine faith that I'm talking about right now, it's impossible to please God. But with the exercise of genuine faith, it's impossible not to please him. That's a little excursus. I went and got a couple outside the fold, as it were. The Lord is my shepherd. I won't lack a thing. He leads me to the green pastures, not only to lie down in, but to feed everything I need. He leads me beside still waters so I can drink from them. Everything I need is in my shepherd. Everything I need is in my shepherd as a powerless sheep. I love the last verse in Psalm 119. 
which is pictured outside here on the wall. It's kind of like the song, Someone to Watch Over Me. I'm a little lamb who's lost in the wood. Seek me, Lord, seek me. And he found me. So it's the sanctifying will of God, which the incarnate man Jesus, the divine man Christ Jesus, did. He came to do God's will, quite simply. And God's will is salvific of the human race. Not only that, it is his will to liberate all of creation from its slavery to corruption. He came to do God's will, to fulfill God's universally saving will. We just read about it, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. For he became and is the only mediator between God and humanity who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 6. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, demonstrated again. Titus 2, 11, 2 Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish. John 3, 16 and 17. 3, 16 is one of the most misunderstood but oft-quoted verses of the Bible, and I'm going to have to take that on in its totality. I'm working on it now. Jesus came into the world to do God's will, and he did it. Quite simply, to tell us die. God's will was not for more sacrifices and offerings, holocausts and sin offerings, etc., as offered according to the law. And if Jesus was going to be a priest, he couldn't be a Levitical priest anyways because he didn't come from the line of Aaron. So he didn't come here and offer sacrifices. He made the sacrifices cease when he kicked over the money tables in the temple complex when he and his disciples took it over, and were accused of insurrection and ultimately executed for it. What happened that day? The sacrifices ceased. So far from coming to offer them, he came to make them stop. And on the cross, they effectively stopped altogether, at least in God's will. But they were still doing them, and the writer wrote to the Hebrews who were tempted to go to where they're still doing them. And that would be really stupid, unbelieving, and evil. So what was the preacher saying? Don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, you might find yourself going to the feasts in Jerusalem if you think they're still relevant. And you might be there when you hear this cry. We're surrounded by Titus of Rome and his armies and allied armies, the abomination of desolation, the abominable army with its idolatrous standards called eagle standards are surrounding the city. They've set up a perimeter and there is no way of getting out and the end of this is gonna be fiery judgment. I don't want you to go there. Find yourself there, the writer's saying. So he's making a case here that it's been done. There's one sacrifice forever and for all, and it's done. So instead of going back to Jerusalem to fulfill these sacrifices, they should be going into all the world to tell everybody that God has effected the reconciliation of the world and the sanctification of all in Jesus Christ. God's will is not for more sacrifices and offerings that were shadows of the reality, but for obedience. That is the obedience of Jesus, his son, which resulted in the sacrifice and offering that did bring pleasure, satisfaction to God forever, that resulted in the sanctification of all mankind. And Pastor Brown sent me the Mirror Bible rendition of Hebrews 10.14, which I recommend if you have the Mirror Bible. And the obedience of the Son, of the man Jesus, of the divine man Christ Jesus, 
the only mediator between God and mankind who gave his life as a ransom price for all, who tasted death for every human person, Hebrews 2.9, whom we see crowned now with glory and honor. His obedience is meritorious obedience, as Lonergan called it, because it's obedience, in my definition, that merited God's salvation for all of mankind and liberation for all of creation. It is Jesus Christ in us who accomplishes practical sanctification also. Our whole vocation, our whole spiritual life, our whole practical sanctification, which we are to follow in Hebrews 12, 14, is all the action of Jesus Christ in us following his action for us at Calvary. Setting us apart for God and for himself liberating us to experience in some real way and some meaningful measure the life of future world in this very age. For we live in two different ages, one which is and is passing away and one which has come with Christ's incarnation and will never pass away. I'd like to close with, regarding God's will, another person I'm reading with great interest and great eagerness is, and you may be tired of me saying his name, Karl Barth. He wrote something about God's will while he himself was speaking in an exposition of Hebrews. Barth wrote this. He said, we do not add to the completeness of this exposition. And I will echo that. We sure don't add to the completeness of the exposition called Hebrews. He goes on to say, but simply describe it once more when we say that this perfect sacrifice which fulfills the will of God took place in our stead and for us. For what other reason was there? God did not need to act as a priest and to suffer as a sacrifice in the person of his son. But we need this mediator and his mediation. And I emphasize this one. The will of God toward us is the purpose of this sacrifice. And his good pleasure towards us is its end. In him there takes place that which we need, but which we cannot do or bring about for ourselves. It is a matter of our reconciliation, our peace with God, our access to him, our freedom for him, and therefore the basic alteration of our human situation. The taking away of that which separates us from him and involves his separation from us, taken away. Our death as sinful men and our living as obedient men. The perfection of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the whole divine height and depth of the turning made in him, is therefore the perfection of the love with which God loved us. And I can only say amen to that, Brother Bart. His turning, what is God's turning? It's one turning, the turning of God to us in love and the turning by God of us to him in love. We thank you, Father, that you have turned to us and that you have turned us. For in the answer to the prayer of Ephraim and Jeremiah, turn me and I will turn to you. You have turned me. I have turned to you. But more than this and beyond this and before this and beneath this and above this, Father, you have turned to us in Jesus Christ, done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And may we see this 
not only is that which was done for me, for us, but may we see it in the larger circle of that which you have done for all. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.